Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Jim Hoven, your host for the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast. And it's time for the next edition. And this one I'm really looking forward to. I have a specialist specialist in a law field that I can't wait to tell you about. Miss Ellen Trackman is the guest. She's going to tell us all about reproductive law. Ellen, this is amazing to have you because I've never even heard of until recently this type of law. So give us a little introduction about yourself. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be part of this. I love your podcast, so really honored to come on. Uh, so I am a lawyer and I specialize in assisted reproductive technology law, very, very long term for it. Uh, in the field, we shorten it to ART or art law, okay. which can be very confusing because it's not statues or paintings. <laughs> no, it is helping people with conception and reproduction and all of the legal pieces that now have come from that. And really, for the most part, that tends to be third-party assisted reproductive technology, which is when you turn to an egg donor or a sperm donor or an embryo donation or a surrogate. So lots and lots of work with surrogacy. And happy to tell you all about that. Colorado amazingly just passed this great and very supportive law this past year. So this coming May 6th will be its one-year anniversary of the new law that's been um, helpful and supportive to families through surrogacy as well as protecting the surrogate and the child by surrogacy. And what did the law do? What was the law before and then how did it change? Yeah, so there wasn't law uh, on point in Colorado and actually things had been going really well and smoothly. We had lots of really understanding judges that would declare the intended parents as the legal parents of the child and not the surrogate. Um, and generally things were going smoothly and best practices were being followed, but the new law really codify those best practices. So those cases where people might not be using best practices now are required. Everyone's required to. Um, another element that I thought was really important is that we have seen states like ours where there wasn't any law. We've seen judges make poor rulings. Uh, so there was this really upsetting case in Wisconsin where a couple had used a donated embryo and a surrogate, and they were a same-sex male couple, and they somehow got this judge who declared them human traffickers, was clearly against their form of family, and it was absolutely heartbreaking. And they spent half a million dollars trying to fight this. The judge declared the child a legal orphan to not have a legal parent at all. And they, uh, so I will mention I have my own podcast, and this couple very kindly came on the podcast and told their story. But the thing was, with Wisconsin, before this case, everything was going smoothly, judges got it, and then you just happen to get this one judge who, you know, feels a family should look a certain way and made this living nightmare for this these parents and this poor child. Um, Did it get righted at the end of the day? <sighs> yes. I mean, again, they, they talk about spending half a million dollars and everything they went through, but this particular judge... Uh, resigned from the bench in order to run for the Supreme Court of Wisconsin. Didn't make it, <laughs> luckily, for those who um, do not agree with the stance. Uh, and at that point, another judge took over and reversed everything and granted them parental rights. Wow. And actually, they went on, so the parents are from Virginia, and they went on to fight for legislation in their home state to recognize the legality of parentage by embryo donation. So they really tried to take it further to help for other parents. Ellen, that's exceptional. And what a great story to lead with. I want to now 
go in reverse. Cause I'm yeah. telling you, you've got these legit awards from all these different companies about being the volunteer of the year and the ally of the year. And you've just been incredibly instrumental in helping people. And I, I don't know if and maybe this is true, but both traditional and non-traditional definitions of parents or families, you've been instrumental in supporting this movement. But that's not where you came from. You came from big time corporate hedge fund <laughs> law of bringing relationships and structure together. So let's move yeah. back to young Ellen. How is it that you decided to go into law in the first place? And then this transition from this business structured partnerships to now the most intimate types of partnerships, which are family partnerships. Yeah. Oh, how far back should we go? How much time do we have? <laughs> as much uh, as you need. So uh, I had this great upbringing. I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, where my father was a nuclear engineer for the Los Alamos National Laboratory. And he tried for me and my siblings to convince them how amazing engineering was. And I'm pretty sure it was one of the science classes, like chemistry, that was like, ooh, I am not, I am not <laughs> skilled in this area what else can I do? And I think like many, I did debate in high school and was interested in that area of uh, arguing and writing. Although, honestly, I'm not that kind of attorney about arguing. I actually like kind of getting to the end where everyone is happy. Yes. Um, but I think I went into undergrad thinking I wanted to do law and not knowing what area I want to do. And I always really remember distinctly in law school, this one professor asking everyone the question saying, raise your hand if you want to do litigation. And I, okay, now everyone raise your hand if you want to do corporate law. And that was, that was, those were the choices. <laughs> That was it. Yeah, that was that was it. Those are the choices. And uh, I had no idea that one day uh, assisted reproductive technology law would be my calling. But uh, was it a thing back then when you were in school? I, I mean, I think technically there was the beginning of some of this technology and children being born that way. But it definitely wasn't really this developed area of law. I mean, still very much developing where attorneys specialize in it. So I would say no, it was not. Uh, so then after. After, uh, after graduating, I ended up working for Sidley Austin, this, well, I think it was the ninth largest firm in the world at the time, doing hedge funds, which was um, incredible. The experience there, everyone was very sophisticated and brilliant, and it was such a great experience in terms of professionalism and working with incredible people. But I also wanted to do something that um, personally felt more meaningful. So I know you guys talk about difference makers, something that really felt like it was making a difference in the world. Uh, and I will say while I was working on hedge funds is when there was this um, recession and a lot of it was blamed on hedge funds. <laughs> so I was, oh no, what am I doing? <laughs> so I really uh, was hoping to make more of a personal difference. And um, that time, while I was working as an attorney, you know, I really was witnessing people that I really cared and love go through infertility. Um, so my sister was one of them, and she is on this podcast. She co-hosts my podcast with me. And, is and what's the name of the podcast? Get, thank get that you, out thank there. Thank you. Yes. Uh, the name of my podcast uh, with my sister is called I Want to Put a Baby in You. I know. I <laughs> love it. I had to hear you say it. It's so cool. Uh, right. um, yeah. So if you look for it, the logo is uh, a sperm wearing headphones. So to <laughs> totally normal. Uh, but so seeing people go through this and it was at that time that I actually got to see an egg donation contract. And I was 
absolutely fascinating. Being an attorney, seeing the legal issues of someone donating their genetic material to someone else for them to be able to conceive a child and what that meant for the donor and the parents and the child in the future and rights to that genetic material. And I was just blown away, fascinated. And I really thought, you know, one day I should do this. And it took maybe another seven years <laughs> to, to actually quit corporate law and start this and um, was so lucky to have this support of my my spouse when I try when I finally made that jump to do it where's was there a a key critical moment that made you say now is the time or was it just building up the infrastructure as you were transitioning yeah. out what what made the thing like now is the time because whether you're an attorney or not we all have those points in our lives don't we where we're yeah. like I gotta go I've been thinking long enough I've been practicing I've been pondering it's go time. What was that for you making such a yeah. big change? And I, my plan was what you talked about, the structure and building it on the side. But no, that that's not what happened. I thought, you know, I'll start preparing this and I'll do it when I'm ready. Um, but no, working in corporate law, having children, it just wasn't possible to find the extra time. And then sadly, it really was some traumatic events in my life that caused me to finally make that big jump. So um, I had a brother, actually, I've had two brothers who took their own lives. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, incredibly sad and uh, tragic for our family. And then I also happened to lose my grandmother at the same time period where I lost a brother, lost my grandmother. <laughs> I had to have knee surgery. It was like all this like terrible month, two month period. And then I was um, uh, forced to be you know away from work because of this knee surgery. And I was actually walking, watching TED Talks. And I think it was one of the TED Talks that was like, don't regret your life. And I was like... That's right. I I need to just do this because it would never be the right moment, right? It's so it's so hard to leave this kind of secure job of something you knew to go into the unknown. And luckily, my craziness of like I'm just gonna do this. I'm just gonna quit and start this. Um, my family supported me, and I I did it. So that was. Amazing to then really just do a deep dive of learning everything I could about the law, connecting with anyone and anyone and everyone with connections to it who would talk to me, going to the conferences, um, and building an expertise in the area. How long did that take? Did you have a good amount of information and, and skill set and knowledge base before you made that jump? Or were you pretty much like, well, I know this is what I want to do, but I got no idea how to do it. Yeah, I mean, I'd been reading everything I could and finding what I could, although that really truly was limited back there and that back then, and it's really only um, 10 years ago. So now there's a little bit more material for those interested in going uh, into the area. And, and some of my colleagues even wrote a book about starting an assisted reproductive technology legal practice. So I didn't even have that tool that now is available, but I was really just learning everything I could and then building from there as I went. Impressive. And, you know, one thing that really took me as I was kind of learning more about all this was this statement. It says the legal system hasn't caught up to reproductive technology. Explain what that means. Give give our audience an example of what that looks like. Oh, it's so true. Uh, so one example that is about to be fixed, knock on wood, that there is uh, legislation in the works. It looks like it's going to be passed. Even... Colorado law that talks about an egg or sperm donation uses this language that a wife with her husband's consent. And even as like a liberated woman, I feel, you know, kind of offended by this language of like, oh, my husband's consent. I do what I want, you know. But, <laughs> um, but it, it, 
forget me. I mean, there are so many families are formed in different ways, whether it's a single parent or a same-sex couple, and the law wasn't specifically including them. And sometimes case law fixes that and there's a way around, and other times it doesn't, where if you're a single parent, maybe you don't have the protection of the law, and that could lead to real consequences. There's also just you know, absolute inconsistency across states as, you know, legislatures and courts try to struggle with this new technology and what it means. So one example is even the mere definition of what is an embryo under the law. Is it is an embryo a person? Is it property? Is it something in between? And we see all along the spectrum where in Louisiana, there is a law that says that embryos are juridical persons that can sue and be sued, which is pretty crazy that your frozen embryo can yes, sue you. That's right. And, a a non-conscious, <laughs> non-sentient. Yes, uh-huh. Wow. And we've seen it happen. Uh, there is a case that uh, well, well, no, out, well, out there. Uh, Sophia Vergara, the famous celebrity actress who was on Modern Family, she had gone through IVF with her fiance at the time, and they had two remaining embryos when they had split up. And he was taking every legal action possible to be able to use the embryos against her wishes. And, he, and was that a hate thing? Like he wanted to get back at her, no, or he was wanting to have kids, or what? What was his motive I don't behind think that? So you know, he wrote this op-ed for the New York Times where he talked about really believing the embryos to be his daughters and he named them and he really wanted to bring them to life so you know in the best for light, him to raise yeah so in the best light possible i mean to give hopefully that that was truly his intention and thinking so he set up a trust in louisiana for the embryos and had the embryos sue sophia vergara to be brought to life uh, which is pretty crazy. Uh, Super crazy. Yeah. So it was the case was dismissed because none of them lived in Louisiana. The embryos weren't in Louisiana. But it really leaves this question: If there had been jurisdiction, could it force someone to be able to use embryos against someone else's wishes, uh, given the law? Wow. And yeah. so the fact that they were fiance would it change if they if it's if an embryo is considered property? And if there's two of them and you're a husband and wife and you're supposed to split property, would that mean one gets one and one gets one? Or what would happen in a situation like that? Or is it really, again, state to state and law to law? I mean, in theory, but it is really state to state and many states don't have laws. And then the courts are dealing with it, doing their best with the given law they have. But it's, it's pretty common that a couple might split up or divorce when they have remaining embryos and may not agree what should happen to them. Um, So Colorado had its own case that went to the Supreme Court where they had to decide what was the proper way to analyze these disputes. And part of the argument was what are appropriate factors to balance the interests between the parties. And our Supreme Court said, you know, the appellate court had used inappropriate factors in that consideration, that they had looked at um, the financial situation of the um, the mother, the Mrs. Rooks, in this case, it was the Rooks case, that whether she was financially in a good place to have another child. And the Supreme Court said that's not appropriate to consider someone's financial situations in deciding whether they have a higher interest to these embryos. Also, the fact that they already had children, they thought that was inappropriate as a factor by itself, and um, as well as whether whether she could just adopt. And they said, that's not appropriate to say, oh, you could just adopt and that's a factor weighing against you. So these are 
these tend to be very difficult difficult cases of weighing two parties' interests when they have, you know, um, embryos and don't agree what should happen to them. Well, I guess maybe in a, a different vein of that same conversation, as I was looking through the website, I saw a really cool picture of a couple with a person in between who would be the surrogate. And she had, I have the oven and they have t-shirts on that say she, we have the bun or she has the bun or just something like she was a surrogate and they were the family that was going to be coming together. There has to be this interesting dynamic and these facets between the people donating, the people being a surrogate, people becoming parents, like no matter what direction or combination of those elements you put together, it's got to be interesting. Is that where you come into play to try to make sure that those relationships start good and stay good? Yeah. So on one side is the legal side with me as the attorney representing someone in a contract and um, getting a court to recognize parents. But I also co-own a surrogacy matching and support organization called Bright Futures Families that Jennifer White, my sister, um, is the director and runs and locally known as Colorado Surrogacy. And that one is really focusing on making sure that hopeful parents, we call them intended parents, and the surrogate really match. I mean, she's really like, a matchmaker <laughs> that, mm. that you want um, people that really see eye to eye on communication and vaccines and who's in the delivery room and um, sadly if something goes wrong with a pregnancy how everyone feels about the termination of a pregnancy really looking at everything that could go wrong and making sure they understand each other and feel the same way um, but on the legal side even you know when I was saying arguing in undergrad you know in college to lead myself to to law I mean for our contracts and representing intended parents and surrogates, we aren't trying to squeeze every cent out of the other side or make sure someone wins the contract. It's really protecting everyone's rights, protecting the relationship, making sure everyone feels comfortable with the terms and understands them. So it tends to be much more of protecting the relationship in each of the parties versus someone winning. Um, but that relationship can be so amazing and special. Uh, we have been so lucky to work with so many women who volunteered to be surrogates. And I think a Do lot of- Do they typically know the person they volunteer for? Or they're just saying, I'll be a surrogate if I find the right person? What's, yeah. the, what's the dynamic? So for a lot of what I see from the legal side, I get a lot of what we call independent matches where People have a woman has volunteered for someone she knows or a friend, but then there's just a lot of women who volunteer and that says, "I want to do this for someone. I don't know who, but um, pair me with someone who needs this." And that's where the agencies kind of come involved and uh, do the matchmaking to pair them. But you know, a lot of people on the outside don't really get it. like, "Why would you go through pregnancy for someone else?" And these the women who do this are some of the most incredible people you've ever known. Where you have to already be a parent to be a surrogate. I I was just going to ask that. <clears throat> so they understand kind of like how magical and amazing and fulfilling as humans to so many of us parenthood is and are absolutely heartbroken that someone might not get that opportunity because they don't, they medically can't carry a child. And um, to put themselves in that position of going through a pregnancy, of injecting themselves with these shots and hormones, going through a delivery for someone else to see someone else have that magic of being a parent is just absolutely incredible to get really to giving. play a small part and to witness that. 
And with your role, would you be representing one party of two in the deal? Or are you kind of like a, for lack of a better term, a, a negotiator, a broker, a, an attorney for both sides to just make the thing work, to, to yeah. make the deal right? So both sides must have independent legal representation. Okay. So um, when we represent uh, a party in a surrogacy arrangement, we're either on the intended parent side or the surrogate side. So um, it's not, sometimes we get... The intended parents, sometimes we get the surrogate. I'm absolutely honored to be on either side, but it can never be both. There's always another attorney in part of this communication, this negotiation, and getting to a good contract that everyone understands. Well, I'll tell you, you have quickly become one of my heroes, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> Thank you. I love, one of the things I love most in life is being able to share a message with people. If it's a message that I feel really compelled or really um, passionate about, and there's an audience that wants to learn about that, just something that really fills my soul. And you gave a TED Talk. <laughs> and so yes. I only know personally one other person that has done a TED Talk, another dear, dear friend of mine. And so I just so am enamored with doing TED Talks. And you did one and I watched it. Oh, and, oh. and so- Can, can and, I confess something? Yeah. I cannot bring myself to watch it. <laughs> so, you know, even, I don't know if you listen to your own podcast, but I'm, I do not. I'm, I'm better with the podcast, even though I'm certainly very critical of myself. Like, why aren't you forming an actual sentence? You know, but somehow the TED Talk is another level where I haven't been able to watch the whole thing yet. I'm the same way. I do not go back and replay and redo probably to my own detriment because I could probably be a lot better if I were listening to it to audit it for that but I never do that so I can appreciate that but I will tell you you brought up some amazing concepts in that short 15 minute talk that you did that I thought was really powerful and one of the craziest things I ever heard of was how you kind of led the talk off with the father who was going to be dying potentially at some point and giving his DNA I don't even know exactly how this works. Maybe you can share it. But then he said, well, hey, perhaps, you know, down the line, even though I'm not here, a child, my child can come up into the world and it created all this havoc and all that kind of yeah. stuff. That was bizarre. Tell us about that kind of a thing. What's that situation about? Thank you for bringing that. Because that is actually one of my favorite areas of this law to talk about because it is truly fascinating to think about posthumous conception where a child can be conceived from someone's DNA, from someone's reproductive material after they have passed away. And thanks to assisted reproductive technology, we're seeing it more and more where um, someone could have sperm retrieved or eggs retrieved or embryos formed and cryopreserved, absolutely normal and standard part of IVF, but someone might pass away and they may have intentions for their spouse or partner to still move ahead with becoming a parent with their reproductive material. And even beyond that, there's also what we call a post-mortem retrieval. Uh, where so tell me about that. You can, I've never heard that. Uh, so not, I know you have a, lots of amazing doctors in this. I'm not the doctor, but I <laughs> do know from all these cases and these reports that you can retrieve someone's reproductive material within a short time period after their death. So we've been seeing more and more people who might lose a loved one. And sometimes the couple were in the depths of IVF or had really been talking about it. Um, and maybe if he hadn't, if 
you know, sperm retrieval, of course, is easier than the other side. But um, but we've seen it come up where, where someone dies and they're asking that their reproductive material be retrieved to give them uh, hope and the possibility of having children in the future. And where we talked about the law not being consistent, that is one of the areas that absolutely state law varies um, very much so in terms of whether there could be inheritance rights, there could be social security benefits, there could be this recognition of the person who has passed being a legal parent to that child. My goodness, <clears throat> that is amazing. Like the thought of how far this goes for not only the legal, but the uh, moral and ethics of it, I'm sure have to be brought into question. So as you're trying to sort all this out, is do you then take... If, if, if you're that person's attorney, whoever that person would be, is do you now if there's a state that doesn't have a law, they don't have any case law, do you refer to other states that might have what you're trying to do? Or do you say, hey, we got to set this together right now? How, how do you go about setting yeah. precedent for something so amazing? Yeah, and there have been a couple cases that have started setting that precedent. Uh, so one of the arguments that ha has won the day a couple times is to look at the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, which is kind of that standard organ donation. You know, all of us go to the DMV and we say whether or not we want our corneas or our heart donated upon our death. And some hopeful parents have argued that, hey, this person I love that passed away, they were, they said they wanted to be a donor, and that includes tissue, which includes reproductive tissue. And a couple um, times that's won the day that the judge said, yes, we, we agree that that does allow that the next of kin to make a determination about a donation of tissue from that person. Wow. Now, what about this? So yeah. now my mind is spinning, right? Mm -hmm. What if it gets put in a will that this is something that you want? Then all of a sudden the people divorce and then the will isn't adjusted. Ooh, Ooh yeah, right? Like, no, it, is that where it starts getting kooky? That sounds like that could be incredibly kooky, right? Because <laughs> right? a will, we've definitely seen case law that says that you can will your reproductive material to others and that that, um, that consent, that intent can be followed and enforced. But um, in terms of if you willed it to your spouse and then you divorced, that would be, uh, I don't know that we have a law in point for that. So that could be a, a groundbreaking case, maybe depending on different factors in it. Wow. And is there is there anything that limits this kind of, um, I don't want to say behavior, this kind of activity of being able to take these amazing technologies and bring new beautiful souls onto the planet? Is it restricted by country? So we have state laws, but what about international? Because I know international adoption, and I want to get to adoption here shortly. International adoption is a different deal than adoption here in the U.S. Is it the same thing for this kind of thing? Uh, so there are definitely varying laws from different countries on so many different aspects of assisted reproductive technology. So one thing that we've seen is that in the United States, it tends to be more of this more freedom for parties to choose how to reproduce less regulation. And one of the elements that we've seen where it actually is really concerning that we don't have the same kind of regulation in other countries is some 
sperm donors we found in the past uh, may have been really used by a lot of recipients without knowing that the sperm bank was using someone with such popularity. And so now that there's DNA testing, donor-conceived persons are taking a DNA, DNA test and being like, whoa, I have 200 siblings. Wow. Like that is like these kind of mind-blowing things. And they have, you know, the donor-conceived persons, there's a number of organizations that have been really trying to fight and be heard that this is not an acceptable practice, that it prevents them from having, you know, um, sub- substantial relationships with their siblings that it uh, also concerns them that they could meet and fall in love with a sibling and not know it, um, not having access to who their donor was. So anonymity is also an issue. So some countries, like parts of Australia, have um, gotten, rid of, gotten rid of anonymity to say that a donor conceived person must have access to know who their biological parent was at some point. So generally at 18 that they have access to that. So we don't currently have that kind of regulation in the United States and we don't have regulation. So there are guidelines by certain organizations that say, you know, you shouldn't have one donor donating more than a certain number of times. I was wondering that. But very hard to, to track that or follow that without any kind of national registry or the structures to do that. But other countries do have that where they say, you know, one donor can't donate more than five times or 10 times. Um, but even in those countries where they have that, we've seen nightmare cases where donors get around it. And there's um, one man in Europe who's said to have, you know, fathered a thousand children because of his like prolific donations. And in, in that case, is the donor doing that for money? Like you go and give a donation, like a blood donation, you get a, a cookie, some orange juice and a check. Like why would someone donate yeah. that many times? <laughs> I don't think that that's the motivation for donors like that. And we've seen, so I will say one of the podcast episodes, we did donate kind of a, we, so we did, um, we did interview a private donor. So this man who was very much out there saying, you know, I have good genes, I'm happy to help people have children, and was a pretty prolific donor. And he did not do it for money, he did it for free. And I suspect that the uh, European gentleman who has a thousand children had similar practices where it probably wasn't for money. I think some people have this motivation to spread their seed. Legacy. How to to put it, you know? (laughs) I mean, I want to think, I mean, donors are amazing and you you want to give them the best, you know, hopefully see things in the best light that they are helping others, helping someone achieve the dream of being a parent. But at some point when it's a thousand children, you might think there might be something beyond that 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 is motivating them. Is there a shortage of donors. Like I know I get requests all the time to donate my blood, right? Hey, we need you. You have this specific type of blood. We really need that. Will you come in and help? Is that the same thing in reproductive medicine? Yes, I think that is an issue. And I, I know we have a local sperm bank and I was talking to the owner recently and she was saying how, especially with COVID, donations were way down. Maybe just part of being in person or kind of the world changing and everyone isolating that there were much less people, less people donating. I've, I've honestly never heard a campaign about come help humanity by donating um, egg or sperm. It, uh, that's interesting. Like I never I think, knew. I think it's probably targeted. I, so I don't know the marketing practices of, of tissue banks, but I do remember for even myself when I was in college, seeing these ads that say, especially for egg donors, they'd have things like, you know, 
earn some huge amount because you're at this prestigious college or because you had a really good SAT score, um, looking for donors and advertising for donors. Is there a lot of truth that you see? Now I'm going maybe more into the medical side, so if so, let me know in that um, there is so much this matching of, ooh, I want my kid to have someone who had an IQ of this or be muscular or be thin or be like, is there this try to matching of, of, of these items genetically? We have interviewed a lot of antenna parents and I often can't help myself from asking that question of when you looked for your donor, what did you look for? And was it all about looks? Was it something else? And I would say most people do say that number one was health, that they wanted a donor who was healthy. They wanted to hopefully spare their child from um, genetic medical issues that could come up. Um, but then you also see people who do feel strongly about the education level of the donor or looks certainly come in. I feel like height is a big one where, you know, people want tall or the other really common one is that people want someone who looks like them, where they want their child to, to fit in with their family and not necessarily be questioned by strangers that that child isn't theirs or doesn't look like them. So often it's a natural, like, I just want... I want to have a normal family, to not be questioned by others, and to enjoy parenthood. And sometimes that means trying to find a donor who looks similar to those in the family. That's really interesting. And it makes sense, right? If you're in that position, that makes sense. Now, what about if we kind of transition on people that are looking to build their family through this mechanism versus adoption? Is there something where a family, and obviously if they've tried IVF several times and the expense is too much or it's just showing that it's not going to work, it'd be easy for them to say, man, if we want to have a kid, this is our this is our best shot is at adoption. Is there a path or funnel of matching to see if they should go this direction, that direction? How, how does that whole thing work? I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting if you can take like an online quiz, right? Should I build my family this way? Um, but I think there are frustrations with both and for families and parents to be to try to figure out what makes the most sense for them. So for many people who go through assisted reproductive technology or surrogacy, it might be really important to them that there be a genetic connection to the child. So especially surrogacy, it might be both of their genetics or one of their genetics. And maybe they do feel strongly that they want that that genetic connection or that legacy of their family to be continued, um, where of course adoption is is not that, that you might not care as much about that. You might be more motivated to, to help someone who's already out there. Um, we've I've certainly seen people go different ways where assisted reproductive technology and fertility treatments don't work out, and so they then go to adoption. And we've seen people the other direction where they're on, you know, wait lists for adoption for years and years and not um, not being seeing success or becoming parents from the adoption route, and then they go back to assisted reproductive technology and look at those options to be parents. So I think a lot of it is just personal as well as kind of finding the path that works best for them and that feels right to, to people who want to be parents. Makes sense. And do you and your law firm work on the adoption side a lot as well? So I will say most of our work is assisted reproductive technology. Most of the adoption we do tends to tends to be um, kinship or step-parent adoptions. And there is this really interesting element um, where adoption and assisted reproductive technology really kind of legally get muddled. So um, if you were to give 
um, birth to a child, you tend to be presumed a legal parent to that child. Uh, if you are married to a woman, then that your spouse tends to still be presumed a legal parent, regardless of being a man or a woman, not based on gender because of marital presumption. But what we found is not every state recognizes that. So there's been these nightmare cases where maybe two people are on the birth certificate, but another state or another court doesn't recognize one of them as a parent. And part of it stems from a birth certificate being an administrative document that other states don't have to follow. So then we have to encourage parents to adopt their own child, in essence. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I will say this really came to light in Colorado recently because we have this amazing representative, so Representative Denea Esgar, who is the House Majority Leader, and she went through reciprocal IVF with her wife. And that means that her wife had her eggs retrieved, so her genetic material retrieved, they used a sperm donor, and then the representative carried their child to birth and gave birth. So one of them is the birthing parent and one of them is the genetic parent, but they didn't have the same legal recognition or standing throughout the country. So she talks about how her wife had to adopt their child to have that legal recognition throughout the country, to have that full faith and credit recognition. <clears throat> And how offensive it was to them no kidding. to go through fingerprinting and background checks to, you know, be background checked to be determined if you were an appropriate parent for your own, for child. Your own child. Incredibly offensive to them. Um, and they had to go through a hearing for it. And so they brought this law, which actually is now named after their baby. So Marlowe's Law um, that has not been signed into law yet, but it's looking very good that that should happen soon, that creates this simplified adoption process. So no fingerprinting, no background check, but allows parents like this in this position where they might have questionable parental rights in other jurisdictions to get a court order to get that adoption so that they will be recognized and have their parent-child relationship protected throughout the country. That is fascinating. I'm blown away by what you're telling me right now. I'm like, literally, I hope the people that are listening to this are getting educated like I am and that they share this this message. Uh, I know if you were looking at the state of what we're talking about with uh, reproductive, basically reproductive protection of the unborn through any number of ways and the protection of families, frankly, is there something that people need to watch for, buzzwords, look at, so that they can make sure the information they're getting here, they pass this along. What is happening right now in trends in this area of the law? So I t a little bit touched on it, but I think a big trend is people who are conceived with donor material are really able to get their voices out there more. The time has passed and now they're adults. And I think one of the biggest lessons for hopeful parents who need to turn to an egg donation or a sperm donation is that really there is um, evidence that openness tends to be in the best interest of their child. So, you know, 30 years ago, the doctor would say, don't tell your kid, just raise your kid like, like your own. Don't even mention there's donor genetics involved or donor material. And we hear lots of stories where people feel like, there's something that they didn't fit in or something. And then later they find out and they feel like there was something wrong with the donation, something wrong with them. There's something 
not okay about it that why why else would they keep it a secret from them so there really is this kind of these voices coming out that it is so much better to be open with your children and there's lots of like amazing children's books coming out to explain like hey we really wanted you but we were missing a piece and kind of like on a child appropriate or age appropriate level explaining kind of what they went through and like how wanted and loved they are but they needed help and here's how that worked and yes there are genetically connected persons to you out there and this is what it means to us and to you um so i think kind of educating people to really think about the future implications uh, for your child and what it's going to mean to them uh, is so important. And I think people are getting that where when people realize they need to turn to a donor, they've been doing more research and being like, okay, you know, maybe it is best to make sure I use an open donor who is open to contact in the future because maybe my child won't care who their donor was. Maybe they don't want to contact them, but maybe they will be really curious. Maybe that's important to them. And I want to find someone who will be able to honor their wishes and support that in the future. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Is there also groups, support groups, for lack of a better term, for the community of people that are going through this? If you're a child and you don't, you know, all of a sudden you get told this, you don't know what to do. You don't know how to process it, depending on what age they give it to yeah. you. Is there groups that work through that we together? We've definitely been seeing people um, start groups and find support and kind of band together. So We Are Donor Conceived is one of the groups I've seen speak at different conferences. The U.S. Donor Conceived Council, I think, is another group that's been really working on having their voices heard and working for better rights for donor-conceived persons. And then on the other side, I will say for hopeful parents, those going through infertility, an amazing organization is called Resolve, and they have really um, been so helpful in helping provide support groups for people going through this, um, helping them find their support, as well as looking and supporting laws that would be better for hopeful parents. And another law that we just, so I actually just went to a bill signing <clears throat> yesterday with the governor. Uh, so Resolve has been really helpful, as well as this nonprofit in Colorado, Colorado Fertility Advocates, in arguing that insurance under Colorado law should treat infertility just like any other medical condition. And it was... Because um, it doesn't now? It doesn't, yeah. So, I mean, it, it could depend on your company. So Google, Facebook, Starbucks is known for providing really good IVF um, benefits. So we hear stories of people taking a job at Starbucks on the side in order to be able to conceive a child to have those, uh, those health insurance benefits. But it's not required under Colorado law until... Now, thanks to this lobbying, and that's and it's a little it's it's very nuanced. Um, but uh, so Representative Matt Soper, uh, so we had bipartisan support, which is very exciting. So he's a Republican. He talked about like you know I can't believe that insurance covers a knee replacement or a hip replacement, but doesn't cover this fundamental medical treatment for people to become parents. So this law just passed now that says that. Um, large group market insurance plans under Colorado law now must treat fertility like any other medical condition for diagnosis, preservation, and treatment. That is so, so very exciting. exciting. Uh, it doesn't go into effect till 2023. And we did pass a law two years ago that did the same thing, but had this complication about defrayal under the Affordable Care Act that has um, stopped it from going into effect for the individual and small group markets as of yet. But hopefully, you know, resolve and the rest of us will keep fighting for better access to fertility care. Are you involved in working 
through cre- the creation of these laws? Is that part of what you do? Are you banging heads with the people to go, let's get this thing out? Is that your job too? Yeah, actually part of this has been really exciting over the last few years to really be involved in legislate the legislative process. I, I mean, I think before the last few years where I really got involved, I didn't even understand like, a bill starts in one side, the House, and then goes to the Senate, or vice versa, and then has to go to the governor, and he has so many days to sign. So it's been really um, educational <laughs> for me to learn about our inner workings of how laws pass. But so the Parentage Affirmation Act, Marlowe's Law, um, making this simplified adoption process, I testified a couple times uh, over the last few months in support of it. Uh, I've been really active on these fertility access bills to try to help see those go forward and help educate lawmakers about why it's important and to really amplify those voices who have been really affected. We have had incredible people step forward to give testimony about why this is so important. Um, The personal stories have come out of people you know, really wanting to have children but having medical obstacles with no coverage are selling their house, living in their parents' basement, parents of these people like deciding not to retire to help their own children so they could have grandchildren in the future. I mean, it's been financially devastating for so many who just couldn't overcome these obstacles and really seeing people who had to do GoFundMes to try to have a child. And it's really been... Um, Amazing to see the people step forward from uh, who had cancer or the oncology world where they talk about before going through cancer treatment, which can destroy your ability to have children, they had to quickly go through an egg retrieval, for example, and that can be $15,000 out of pocket. And so one of the amazing voices, Valerie Pernis, has talked about her situation of being young and um, you know not really being ready to think about family yet, but be- being put in this, this situation where, hey, you need to start chemo, and if you want any chance of a biological child, you need to go through an egg retrieval right away. Also, it's this huge amount of money. And her talking about having to do a GoFundMe to like save this chance to have a child in the future. Wow. Well. Again, this is just so revolutionary to my mind because I've never heard these concepts before, literally before today. And one thing you guys do that parlays onto everything we were just talking about in the last five minutes is estate planning in the, as this new family is forming, there's things that need to be done. And so you help them understand, you guide the new families in the way that helps them be able to take care of each other. Explain that a little bit because that's unique. I've never seen that kind of combination before in, in a law firm as I've talked to different folks. Yeah, well, everyone should have an estate plan, you know, yes. everyone should have a will and a plan for what happens to, you know, make life so much easier when you do pass, because, you know, we all know death and taxes are, are coming for us no matter what. But really assisted reproductive technology has added this whole other complicated element to estate planning. So considerations like when someone's a surrogate, we always require the intended parents to name a guardian because God forbid something happens to them while she's carrying their child. She did not intend to be a parent to this child. She was doing it for them and they need to have a plan. Also just going through IVF, if you have egg, sperm or embryo stored, what is your plan for that? Did you intend for it to be discarded? Do you have some other plan in mind? Do you feel like it's important that embryos have a chance at life to help others? Do you want them donated? And really documenting that and making sure that can be those wishes can be fulfilled through appropriate legal documents. Impressive. Well, I'll tell you, you have been an absolutely amazing, amazing guest and you've given so much information. 
I do have to ask you one thing. One yes. last question. Oh, okay. I'm ready. <clears throat> All right. If you've been given one piece of advice or you've learned one thing along the way here that's fundamental to who you are as a person or how you've grown this incredible business and how you've built this incredible life with you and your family and your kids, is there one thing that you would share with the audience as to, man, this is one thing you could, that I hang my hat on? Oh, I, I don't think this is groundbreaking or neat, but to really, to do follow your dreams. You know, I remember working corporate to being in a position to support my family and being comfortable and seeming like the right path and quitting your job doesn't seem like the right path, but to be where I am now, where I get to feel like I'm making such a difference in individuals' lives, to see the babies that are born and get those announcements has been so incredibly meaningful. So I don't expect everyone to have that that same dream, but really that if you do have that thing that's calling you, that you feel like you could make a bigger difference in the world to, to do it. <laughs> that's I love ability. it. That's the best. Okay. Now, final, final question. You guys are licensed in six states. Yes. So, um, so I live here in Denver, Colorado, but I and I'm licensed here in Colorado. I grew up in New Mexico, licensed in New Mexico in New Mexico since 2006. Uh, so, continue to practice there. I'm licensed in California, where I lived for a decade, and then in the last few years, I just became licensed in Montana, um, which has been amazing. The number of women in Montana who have stepped forward to be surrogates. So, we've seen lots of amazing surrogacy in Montana that, in, that inspired me to become licensed there. So, I'm a li- I'm licensed in those four states, and I. Also also have an incredible law partner, Rachel Wexler, and she lives in New York and is licensed in New York, New Jersey, as well as Colorado. Very cool. So if people have questions, they yes. have um, issues that they might want to run by you, they're considering this type of, because this applies to everybody, you know, what we'll call traditional partners or any sort of family group. And, and that's why you've been so recognized by the LGBTQ community as being a, such an integral partner. This applies to all of us. So if someone wants to get a hold of you, your team, your your business, how do they do that? Yes, please reach out. Um, you can go to our website, www.trackmanlawcenter.com and Trackman is T-R-A-C-H. M-A-N, lawcenter.com. And we have this, uh, thanks to technology, you can just like click and schedule a free consult. It just immediately sends you a Zoom link, which is really nice. We get to see each other's faces and chat. And I love, I love, love, love talking to people about this, even if they're early on, still kind of figuring out what makes the most sense to them. Uh, Rachel as well is such an amazing resource. And um, I do encourage you if you enjoy interesting stories and experts to check out the podcast, I Want to Put a Baby in You. So there's a website, I want to put a baby in you.com, and you can find it on iTunes, SoundCloud, all the places that you find uh, podcasts. That is brilliant. So go check out her podcast. So awesome. Thank you so much, Ellen, for being here. If you have found this valuable, I hope you'll pass this along. Share it with someone, uh, enjoy it, learn it, and just spread the word about this great business and this great concept. So until next time, remember, I know you're out there making a difference. We're here making a difference, and we're going to see you next week.